0: All right, well, last week we did the introduction to Ecclesiastes, and uh, today we're going to look at chapter one. But this is a uh interesting book, as I said last week, a lot of people look at it and they say, "Well, it's just providing secular wisdom. there's not a lot of spirituality to this book. there's some things in there that some people believe wouldn't be biblical advice and and whatnot, And so we want to look a little little deeper. Into this, remember this was a book that was read publicly by the Jews at Jewish festivals, especially the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which is a feast of joy. And so, a lot of times, think people think of the book of Ecclesiastes as this humdrum book, and it's really not. It's really kind of the Philippians of the old Old Testament. One commentator calls it, and so it doesn't look at a at life from a morbid perspective but rather as a very realistic perspective. Um, I don't know if you remember the bird song. They wrote a song about this. To everything, turn, 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 remember? <laughs> uh, There's a season, turn, turn, turn. Uh, that's kind of where they got that inspiration for this, this book. Um, the author, Herman Melville, who wrote, uh, authored uh, Moby Dick, he called it the truest of all books. And he said that you could trust the book of Ecclesiastes because... There is sorrow in it, um, and you can trust a man who's lived hard, and that's what his kind of rationale was. He, he kind of came from the perspective, if you claimed that you had uh, lived a charmed, perfect, and you know entitled life where you never suffered at all, uh, well, he concluded you can't trust a person like that. But if there's someone who's bled and suffered and and had maybe a a horrible experience along in their life, you can always trust usually what that person says to some degree because they've gone through trials and tribulations. You know, today, as in any generation, success is something that everybody wants. You know, you don't run into many people that say, yeah, I just want to fail in life. I just want to become a total failure. Uh, That's the opposite. Uh, People want to succeed and they want to be successful. And it's more in our culture now than anything else we we're We're, we're kind of judged by how successful we are. It doesn't matter what profession you may come to or what profession you come from. you know if you're in sales and it's how many sales you have, if it's you know anything and, and it's it's driven into us. You know Have you ever seen those uh posters? They're kind of cool. they're just you know like sixteen by twenty posters, and they're they deal with like positive uh, reinforcement things. Uh, they're called successories, is what they call them. And, you know, one would have like a, a teamwork and it has a, you know, whatever, a football team. And it just tends to encourage people. Well, somebody took those and they kind of do a spoof on them. And one of them, which I saw online the other day, it was kind of funny. It had a, a picture of this ship that was sinking. And it said, sometimes the journey of a thousand miles ends very, very, very badly. <laughs> you know, and that's reality. Right, It's not always going to work out. Um, And so sometimes we have to be realistic and understand that not everybody's going to get the trophy. That's not how life is. That's not how real life is. And so even though we want to be successful, um, it's important that we gauge that success from a biblical standard and not our own. Now, the Bible is basically... um, obviously God's word and here in this section of the Bible we have these five books that kind of stand together in the Old Testament and they're called the books of wisdom or wisdom literature and most of the people who read the Old Testament uh, tend to gravitate to these books Not so much Job, but Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. They just gravitate to them, and I think one of the reasons they gravitate to them is because they're a little less historical than the other books. You know, it's you read the other books in the Old Testament, and there's a battle after battle, and somebody's wiping out somebody and killing somebody. And and here, it seems more, uh, uh, it resonates with a, a sense of joy. These books, and so there's people that really gravitate to these. Well. Each of these books has a purpose. You think of the book of, of Proverbs, okay, that was written here by the, the, the same author. And when you stop and think about it, if you want to be successful in life, whether you're in business or a student or whatever, um, you want to apply the teachings of Proverbs. That's what it's there for. It gives you the nuts and bolts of how to do that. Um, Psalms is another one. It's the kind of, one commentator said, it's the writing of the schizophrenic king david and i thought that's kind of a weird way to describe david but he went on to explain he says you know it's it's the one book that in one line you can read something like how long O lord will you forsake me and then two lines later he says how great you are to be so near to me you know it's like he's just going back and forth and i don't know about you but i kind of my heart resonates with that because that's realistic that's everyday christian life Sometimes you're feeling, wow, and two minutes later, you may be in the depths of despair. You know, it's, it's a very practical book, and, and people gravitate to that. David says, why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? But then what does he say? Put your hope in God, right? It's, it's just like, it just bounces like a, a, a ping pong going back and forth. Then you have the, the book, the Song of Solomons, that is a very celebration of intimate relations between a man and a woman. As a matter of fact, it was considered so graphic by the, 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 the Jewish culture that young Hebrew boys were forbid to actually read it until they got of the appropriate age. And then you have Job and Ecclesiastes. And these are kind of two books that come from, to us with one lesson, but they come from opposite sides of the spectrum, you might say totally opposite sides of the spectrum. You know the book of Job. I mean, you know, the accuser goes into heaven and basically says to God, hey, I'm looking for somebody, you know, and all these people you've created, they're a real mess. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? And we know the story. You know, one, one thing after the other happens to this poor guy. Cataclysmic things that happen in his life, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And finally, he's sitting in, a, in ashes, completely poor, It says the dogs are licking his wounds. And he arrives at the end of all this by saying, we have no hope on earth. Our only hope is beyond the sun. And, you know, you can read that book on your own. But what's interesting is when you look at life, okay, you have people who have Job-like experiences, I mean, their life is just filled with trauma after trauma after horrible experience. Now, most of us have had a blessed life. I mean, even if we did have some Job-like experiences, no one here today can say, yeah, I, my life depicts the life of Job exactly. This is exactly what happened to me. No, this, is, this, this poor guy was, went through the mill. And, you know, what we tend to do When we're subject to a little bit of trial in our own lives, we begin to to look at heaven and say, you know, if I just would have had more of this, if I would have just had a different upbringing, if I would have just had more money, if I would just have more power, if somehow I could just have more friends, if I had a better religion, if my parents weren't so mean to me, if I would have grown up in a different place, If I could just get this or get that. And so we begin to create a reality in our own minds that's that's not real. In their minds, this better existence that exists somewhere over the rainbow (laughs) that doesn't really exist, they begin to believe that it does. And so they start chasing a dream. Well, what happens? Here comes the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's what he's going to do through this book. He's going to use... Basically, five senses. The idea of taste, touch, seeing, hearing, smelling. And he's going to use those five senses, and he's going to combine it with all his wisdom, with all his power, because Solomon was the wealthiest, the most powerful, the, the wisest person during this time. Period. Hands down. And he's going to use those five senses to apply those five senses to... Basically, six things that men chase after. Wealth, power, religion, friends, work, and pleasure. And he's going to show us how it works out for them. And that's really what, overall, the book is dealing with. And what the writer deals with in this book are the basic questions of life that we face every day. It's not a, a book of worldly wisdom. as I, I'm surprised Christian commentators say, well, it's just filled with worldly wisdom. It's not, it's not godly wisdom. I think it's, it's a book filled with God's wisdom that's intended for every believer. And it's also intended to be a book of evangelism for those who don't believe. It's really designed to, to let the secular world know who this God is, what he has in mind, and what the life that he created is all about. It has a lot to tell us, very practically. Well, last week we said that Solomon wrote the book, and I just want to give you some of the reasons why. And it's important to understand, as you do a study, if you do your own study on this, you're going to see a lot of people question that Solomon wrote this book. They don't believe that he was there in that time frame, whatever. They give a whole bunch of different ridiculous reasons. Martin Luther himself said Solomon did not write the book of Ecclesiastes, but it was a product of Surak at that time. And so, uh, the time of Maccabees. And so, you know, there were some very respected people that think that Solomon didn't write the book. And it really, depending on who wrote this book, it, it can taint the way you take the book. If I write you a, a letter, say you just lost a loved one, and you're, you write me a letter that's, a, that's supposed to be a comforting letter, but I know you, and I know that you've never lost anybody in your family at all. I know you cannot relate to losing a loved one. So whatever you say on those pages is going to mean a whole lot different than if I knew that you had gone through the loss of a loved one, right? You're going to take those words, and they're just going to jump off the page. Why? Because this person understands what I'm feeling, because he's been there, he's done that. And that's kind of what Solomon is doing. And so when we begin to understand, first of all, it starts off here, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. I mean, I don't know how you can get through that verse and say Solomon didn't write this book. It's very clear. It says that he was king and that he was what? The son of David. Um, You know, the 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 word preacher there basically means one addressing an assembly. It doesn't mean like a gospel preacher, like a pastor. It's not talking about that. It's just talking about someone who's addressing assembly. And it could apply to a king as easily as it could a prophet. It's just a description of what Really, their rule is there, and so his title was one of the king. It says the son of David, and if you look at at verse two, he says, "Their vanity of, of vanity says the preacher, vanity all is So once again, it, it dials down on this guy who's addressing the assembly. It uses it in verse uh, uh, twelve as well. The preacher, it says have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. So that kind of leads to the second point, not just his title, but his home. His home was where? We learned that he lived near the temple. It says that he he lived near the temple. He was a king in Jerusalem. Verse 12 um, says that he was a, a king over Israel in Jerusalem. Look at verse 16. It says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all other who were over Jerusalem before me. Or even over in verse 7 of chapter 2. I bought uh, male and female uh, slaves uh, and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. Well, we know that the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. And so this assumes here that the temple is standing. It says he's in, in Jerusalem. And that's where Solomon's home was. Um, so we have his title, his home, his age. Uh, some people believe that when he was writing this, it suggested anyway, that he is an old man. And we talked a little bit about this last week. We, we said that Proverbs was a uh, song of Solomon. was probably authored by Solomon in uh, his young age. And then uh, Proverbs, probably his mid-age. And then here in Ecclesiastes, it's when he is older. He's described as an old person. Um, look over at chapter 11. <clears throat> These are words that describe... Someone who is older, it says there, Rejoice, O man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Um, down it, uh, it, it, keep going, walk in the ways of your heart, the sight of your eyes, but know that all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart, put away pain from your body, for youth and dawn of life are vanity. In other words, you're not young anymore, are you, Solomon? That's the implication there. And if you read basically the first seven verses of chapter 12, he says the same thing. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. And the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And then he closes off there basically talking about um, verse, verse six there before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. All right. So it speaks of someone who it strongly suggests that he is older. He's not a young man anymore. Uh, Early Jewish writers say that Solomon wrote it in his old age when he was weary of life to expose the emptiness and the vanity of all worldly pursuits and carnal gratifications and to show that the happiness of man consists in fearing God and obeying his commandments. That's what the early Jewish writers said about the author. We can also conclude that Solomon wrote this book from the marital experiences that are mentioned here in chapter 7. We see a reflection of the many wives that Solomon had in chapter 7, uh, verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart it snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And he continues there all the way down to verse 28. He says, Behold, This is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly. But I have not found Uh, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So the idea is, is that it's speaking really of all of his marital escapades didn't end in anything that was beneficial. Um, and that depicts Solomon. Well, verse 13, 1.13 talks about his wisdom, not just his marital experiences, but we think he's the author because of his wisdom. In verse 13, it describes, he describes himself and he says there, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So it shows us that Solomon was granted. You remember, that was his one wish. God, give me wisdom. Well, God thought that's a, that's a good thing to ask for, so he gave it to him. Um, you know, he wrote over 3,000 proverbs, the Bible tells us. Um, and so he was very wise So that also lines up, you could say, with Solomon. And then you look at the individual's wealth. He talks about his wealth in verse 4 of chapter 2. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Sounds like an estate. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. So he's obviously wealthy enough to take care of these slaves. I had also great possession, possessions of herds and flocks. And then he says this, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So he has quite a bit of stuff. <laughs> you know, quite a bit. And it, it, it shows us clearly. He says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold from and the treasure of kings and provinces, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men, so I mean this guy had more stuff than anybody, I mean more than Bill Gates, more than the guy that owns Amazon all those people he you know combined ten times more amazing amount of wealth, and so it, it gives us the experience because. The reason I point that out, if Solomon wrote this book, which we believe he did, then what he says about wealth should carry some credentials, right? Because he was wealthy. What he says about wisdom should give us some insight because he was wise. And so when he's talking about the meaning of life, it's more than just some guy off the street that says, hey, let me tell you what I think. I mean, this guy lived it. And uh, he lived it in such a way that was really a... Um, just an incredible experience for him. And so when you, when you stop and, and think of, of Solomon and you think of everything that he was given, all this wealth and his wisdom and everything, um, we're dealing with somebody who's definitely been around the block a couple times. You know, they just didn't fall off the, the pumpkin trunk and truck and, uh, oh, let me tell you what I think. I mean, they really have a lot of experience under their belt. And so it leaves no doubt that it's Solomon. And at this time, just so you know historically, this is a time when Israel had extended its borders thanks to King David. David achieved it, but now it was up to Solomon to manage it. And so they had a vast kingdom. Um, they really considered Solomon the king of all the earth. I mean, because everywhere you looked, it was Israel. And all these people were coming to him for advice. They were coming for him to him for um, provisions. All these things, and he they were amazed at the wisdom he had. In First Kings chapter ten, it tells us about what Queen uh, uh, Queen Sheba says about Solomon. First Kings. You can just turn over there, chapter ten. First Kings ten, and then we'll just read the first seven verses. 1 Kings 10, beginning in verse 1. Because she had heard of all the fame of Solomon and, and all the stuff going on. And so it says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. 1 Kings ten, two. She came to Jerusalem with a very great uh, uh, entourage. kind of, And it says there, With camels with uh, bearing spices, with much gold, precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. I mean, can you imagine talking to somebody and no matter what you ask them, they have an answer? I mean, wow. I mean, that's amazing. Verse 4. And when the king of Sheba had all had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. In other words, she was completely taken back by this, overwhelmed. You know, I remember when, um, you know, you go to to certain places, you go and you, we were in India, we went to see the Taj Mahal, When we went there, it's like, wow, they built it, how did they build this? I mean, they didn't have cranes and all that, how did they do this? And you're just in awe. That's kind of how this this queen was, there's no more breath in her. It says in verse 6, And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and with my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you upon the throne of Israel Because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. So, this is what the Queen of Sheba thought about Solomon. And so, we can see very clearly that he clearly was the author of this book. Now, I just want to, before we even read the first chapter, I want to give you some of the purposes of the book. Why did he write it? Why was this book written? Okay, um, because if we don't understand the purpose of why the Lord wrote this book through Solomon, why he did this, then we're not going to really we're going to have a harder time understanding it. And so the book of Ecclesiastes was written basically for four reasons. For four reasons. First of all, to reveal the futility of all earthly pursuits. To reveal the futility the vanity of all earthly pursuits. The idea that you're going to be successful and that someday you're finally going to sit back and go, yes, this is what... It's a lie. It's never going to happen. It's all vanity. Uh, If your goal in life is really to achieve and succeed in business, when you go through this book, you're going to have a lot of problems. (laughs) It's not going to be encouraging in that venue. Um, Because in this book, you continually encounter... This statement, right there in verse 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we said last week that word means what? It means vapor, it means breath, it means nothingness. He doesn't say some things are, he says everything is. You know, when you stop and you think about that, does that mean, you know, me as a hard-working you know, individual providing for my family when I go to work every day, that's vanity. Yep. <laughs> well, I'm working really hard on my marriage and vanity. <laughs> what about when I go out and I, I witnessed all these vanity? He doesn't say some things are good, some. He says everything is but a vapor, but breathless, but nothingness. It's used 40 times in this book. And so. When you you stop and you think that that word, vanity, is used 40 times in this book, yet it's used only 40 more times in the entire balance of the Old Testament, that tells you something. His mind was focused on it. Um, And it wasn't written by somebody who didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, he completely understood what it meant to have the best of everything. To drink the finest whatever and, and to put on the, the best clothes, the best suits, robes, to drive the best chariots, whatever. I mean, everything was premier. But then he also, I think, understood on the other end. He went to the other aspect of life. And probably said, you know, I'm going to hang out with the, the redneck boys too because I'm not finding it over here with all my rich friends, so I'm going to go to this, this end of the spectrum and, and you know, we're going to go hunting and we're going to go fishing and go watch NASCAR and, and, and maybe that'll fulfill everything. Nope. Everything is vanity. Nothing fulfills that need. And so the main purpose of the book is to reveal the futility of all earthly pursuits. Um, and what's interesting... Is that when we learn that earthly pursuits and our obsessions with them keeps us from knowing the eternal God in all His glory, that should change our heart, but it doesn't. We continue to pursue (laughs) and be obsessed with all the things on this earth. You know, uh, it's just built into our DNA. It's who we are. It's what we do. And what Solomon is trying to tell us is, look, you know, that that's not gonna meet the mark that's not gonna you're not gonna find satisfaction in that now you may you know for a little bit isn't it funny how when we get something new whether it's a car or a phone we feel good about ourselves for about a week right yeah exactly and then the car gets grabbed, the phone gets busted whatever or stolen or left on the <laughs> whatever train or whatever so i mean when you think about it you know that 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 little kind of juice that we get from getting something new whether it's a Christmas gift or whatever it doesn't last it doesn't last and so sometimes those things can take us off the path from seeking the Lord and and we get fixated on those Um, and yet God is saying hey I'm still here you should be looking at me not all that stuff that I've blessed you with nothing wrong with having nice things I think it was Chuck Swindoll that said the problem is is when the nice things have you. (laughs) That's when you got a problem. You know, when you're holding on to everything with white knuckles, you got an issue. So, to reveal the futility of all earthly pursuits. Secondly, to realize the source of all we enjoy in life. To realize the source of all we enjoy in life. And, you know, the first purpose strips us of all the ideas of why we should be successful. And what we should do in life. The second purpose, when we realize the source of all we enjoy in life, gives us back the true source of that joy. Uh, Ecclesiastes is really, as I said last week, the Philippians of the Old Testament. It's a book of joy. It's not against joy. Even though it sounds kind of sour sometimes when we read it. Uh, That word appears several times, joy, gladness, pleasure, throughout the book. And so it's focused on that. And I think if you were to give the book a subtitle, you could probably say, How to Enjoy Life from God's Point of View. (laughs) How to Enjoy Life from God's Point of View. Not our point of view, because our point of view is skewed. Our point of view is tainted by sin. In each section, Solomon concludes with a statement about joy. Just follow this with me. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 24 and 26. He says, There is nothing better for a person that he should eat And drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge, and there it is again, joy. But to the sinner, he has given the the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one God pleases. And so, God wants us to experience this kind of joy and so some commentators read that and go well that's that's worldly wisdom you shouldn't pursue that that's not a well no that's what god has given us those things to enjoy they're from his hand Um, or in chapter 3 verses 12 and 13 look at what he says here about joy he says i perceive that there is nothing better for them than to what be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. And then he says this, this is the gift from God to man. It's God's gift. You know, as Christians, we're not to walk around with ashes on our head, woe is me, you know, you know, in sackcloth. That's, That's not what the Bible says. In verse 22 of the same chapter, it says, so I saw that there is nothing better that, than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Do you rejoice in your work? Are you thankful for your job? You know, we, we have, we've been created to work. You know, it's not a... Now, because of sin, work is a lot harder. <laughs> But there was a purpose for Adam and Eve. I mean, they just didn't lay around in the garden all day. They had a, a task. They had things that God wanted them to do there. So, you know, in a, in a way, they had work. Now, they didn't have the weeds to deal with before sin and all that like we do. But when we realize our work comes from the hand of God, we should rejoice in it. Rejoice the fact that we have a job. Rejoice in the fact that we can go out and, and toil with our hands. It changes the whole perspective. Or look at chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. And then he, he says there, Everyone also, to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power, to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go... It's a bad book for people on diets, by the way. (laughs) For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Or in chapter 9, verses 7 and 9. It's the same, same theme, really. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your, your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. I mean, even the toil that we deal with on a day to day basis in our lives is really a gift from God. It's there for a purpose. And then he says in chapter 9, or chapter 11, verse 9, Rejoice, O man, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. All right? So, unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians today that believe that all those statements that I just read to you are of a secular mindset. They're secular wisdom. They're not God's wisdom. And yet, that's exactly what God's wisdom tells us to do, that we should be joyful in what he provides for us. It shouldn't be a drudgery. And when you begin to realize, see, the problem is they become a toil, they become a drain on us, when we forget where they're coming from. See, when we're enjoying the food more than the one who provided the food, we have a problem. (laughs) You know, when we're more thankful for the the nice steak we're eating rather than thanking God for the steak that he's provided for us to eat, we have a problem. And that's really what happens. So we need to realize the source of all that we enjoy in life is from the Lord. And then... Thirdly here, to remember our ultimate accountability to God. And this is really important. You know, this is something that our society has just basically thrown in the gutter. You know, uh, we have to ultimately answer to God for what we have done with our lives. And that's for Christians and non-Christians, by the way, right? Because as Christians, we're going to be held accountable as well. We're not going to be judged in a punitive sense, but we will be held accountable with what we've done with the gifts and the blessings that God has given us in our life have we used them for his glory Uh, the name God appears 39 times in this little book and there's two concepts about God that come come over and over again the first one is that he should be feared that he should be feared and that kind of grows you know counterculture you know God is a God of love you know you don't have to fear God no we're called to fear God in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it. Why? So that people fear before him. Fear before him. It's that reverential all. It's the idea that God is God and you are not. <laughs> all right. So there's, there's an element of respect there. Or over in chapter 5, verse 7, he says, For when dreams increase and words, may, uh, and, and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. That theme is throughout the entire book. It's not just in a couple verses. 7, verse 18. He says there, It is good that you should take hold of this and from That withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. The one who fears God. Chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Or lastly here, just chapter 12, verse 13 at the end. It's Kind of how he concludes the whole book. The end of the matter. After everything has been heard, after everything I told you, this great man of wisdom, he says, Fear God and what? Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. That's what we're called to do. Uh, the fear of God keeps us faithful. The fear of God keeps us committed. Uh, the fear of God, the Bible says, is what? The beginning of, of wisdom and of knowledge. And you look at our society today, and people don't fear God. They really don't. They don't fear much of anybody anymore. Uh, you know, we forget who God is, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipotent. He's the creator. He's why we're here. I mean, are we awed by his presence? Or even as Christians, have we grown complacent? You know, we all can at times. We forget that, wow, you know, when we pray, who are we praying to? are our prayers just a little thing we say before we eat the food? Or do we understand, no, we're actually praying to the God who created us. It should be a very intense uh, time when we pray. But we grow complacent because, you know, we don't see God and so we figure, well, you know, he hears us and and we need to remember, remind ourselves constantly we need to fear God. And the second concept here that talks about God continually is that God will bring you and every work you've done into judgment. Sooner or later, he's going to look at it. You know, he might put it off For a little while, but sooner or later, he's going to look at what you've done in your life. Verse 15 of chapter 3. That which has already been done, that which is is to be, that already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Everything will be brought under that umbrella of uh, judgment. Or chapter, um, or verse 17 there, I think as well. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Uh, chapter 11, verse 9, similar verse. I think we already read that. Um, and the book ends with the idea for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You know, so many times as believers, (coughs) we show remorse when we're caught. (laughs) Well, we're always caught with God. He doesn't miss anything. (coughs) You're not going to hide anything from him. You can't go somewhere where he's not. And so, you know, it's not just the end of the book. It's throughout the whole thing, as I just showed you. And I think one of the greatest problems in our culture that there's no consciousness of God. I mean, read Romans 1, right? That's what it's at. People act as though God either doesn't exist or isn't concerned. And so we're, we're totally focused on ourselves, our success, and God is set on the shelf. But he tells us over and over throughout the book, you're not going to find joy. You're not going to find any satisfaction in life apart from a proper relationship with him and that relationship comes through his son the lord jesus christ to know god is the highest pursuit in life i picked up an older uh, german lady the other day from kaiser and gave her a ride um, through uber to um, burlingame and uh, she was part of the war and all that and she had pretty good health but she was all by herself i think she was, had one child left she was living with in Burlingame, but her husband had passed away, and we got to talking in the car, and um, eventually she asked me, well, do you do this full-time? I said, no, I'm just part-time. What do you do full-time? So I told her, oh, you're a pastor. Can I ask you some questions? So we're driving down 101 in in this traffic, and I thought, you know, that was the one time when I thought, Lord, I'm thankful for this traffic because it's taking longer to get to our destination and we can cover more ground. But she shared with me how hard her life was. Her, her mother died when she was two. Her dad died when she was five. She was raised in foster care. It wasn't good and all this stuff. And one thing after another. And she remembers when she was young. I think her, her mother died, I think, when she was seven, she said. But when she was young and after her die, dad had died, she made a bargain with God and said, please, God, I'll do whatever you want. And they were reformed in their background. I'll do whatever you want. I just don't ever want my mom to die. Well, her mom died. <laughs> so in her mind, as a young six, seven-year-old, she thought, okay, that's it. And so she basically walked away from everything. She's not a bad person. You know, she's not some demon-possessed, crazy person. But she was really struggling with that. And um, she began to tell me, you know, why would God allow this to happen to me? And she began to recount all the things that happened in her life. And um, she, she asked me, well, what do you... What do you have to say to that? And I said, well, I'm sorry you had to go through all that. I don't understand why God allowed that to happen. All I can tell you is that you're still breathing <laughs> and that there is still a God and there is still an eternity. And what you do today depends on where you will spend that eternity. And that should be of utmost importance to you. And in the end, she admitted, she agreed that there was a God she agreed that there was eternity. She didn't think you just went to the grave and, and, and that was it. And so I was able to just, you know, uh, give her a little track and a church card, but I was able to steer her. She says, you know, I said, do you have a Bible? And she said, yeah, I have several Bibles, but I don't read them anymore. I said, well, I, give you, I challenge you to open up one of your Bibles and begin in the Gospel of John. Well, shouldn't I begin in the Old? I said, no, don't begin in the Old Testament <laughs> Just take my word for it. Just start in the, the, the Gospel of John. It's fourth book. You'll find it. it's like halfway through the Bible. And, uh, and start reading it, but read it with a prayerful heart. You know, read it, God, I really want to know you. And, and if you read those words, I, I guarantee you that God will, will reveal himself to you in a way that maybe he's never done before. And maybe one day you can look back on your life and even though it's been hard and it's been tough, maybe not thank God for all that stuff but maybe somehow by his grace, he'll put it in perspective for you. And maybe God could even use you in the, in the lives of others who have gone through similar traumatic events and you could minister to them. But the first step is you have to have that relationship with God. And she said she would do it. I don't know if I ever, you know, who knows? I mean, in eternity, we'll find out. But, you know, that's that's so important. Um, and, and people get off the track and they begin to focus on all these other things and they they really recreate a God in their own mind and they, they forget that God is a a God of judgment that we should fear God that he will bring everything that we do and have done under his ultimate uh, judgment and so you know first corinthians ten thirty one says whether you eat whether you drink whatever you do do what do all for the glory of God. That's what we're called to do. We're created for His pleasure. And we've become a society that's very focused on ourselves, on us. Um, Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their beings. And even Colossians 1.16 reiterates the same point. All things were created by him and for him. Uh, Noah Webster once said that his life was controlled by the belief that he was accountable to God. That he was accountable to God. That's what should control our lives. You know, you hear a lot about today in men's groups and stuff, well, we have an accountability group. We have, You know what? I mean, if you can't be accountable to God, first and foremost, I think all those other groups are ridiculous. If you don't understand that God is watching you, And what you do before God matters, you know, you're going to fib your way through all the other accountability groups. Um, So we, we just have to be reminded of that. And that's really the message of Ecclesiastes. You can't escape the fact that everything we do will be judged by God. And aren't you thankful in retrospect as you look back that That it was Jesus Christ who took upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our sins. That we don't have to be judged for our own sins. That that our God is is gracious, so gracious, that he wants us to forego that punishment. And he's given us Christ as a way out of that. Well, let me read chapter 1. And it, it, it pretty much speaks for itself. So it's not, this isn't kind of a book where you go through word by word, chapter, or verse by verse. But I just want to read it for us, and then we'll just make some uh, concluding comments. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of all vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, and a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. Then he talks about these three things here. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to its place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been, what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? How many times have we heard that, right? (laughs) It's already been in the ages before us there's no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after i mean it really puts things in perspective doesn't it i mean we think that somehow we're going to save the world that we're going to make this huge impact on our society and we're going to do this and we're going to do that no you're not you know what one day you're going to die they're going to put you in a box and put you in the ground in 20 years, nobody even know who you are. That's how life is. That's reality. We want to believe it's something more, but it's really not. See, that's why of all those senses, the touching and the seeing and the feeling, you know, unless you have the sixth sense of faith that God gives us through Christ, we don't have anything. But when you have that, when you have that relationship with God through Christ, then all these things come into perspective. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I've applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under heaven, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And in my heart, and my heart has said, has had great experiences of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. In other words, I've gone to both extremes. (laughs) I've done everything. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. You ever try to catch the wind? Can't do it. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. You know, to recognize this important question in life is life worth living? The answers there, I think I put them in your outline. First of all, because God, uh, because what you do does not last forever, verse 4, what we do doesn't last forever. It's not going to last forever. And so why not do things that will last to eternity? Why not invest in eternity that way with winning people to Christ or witnessing for him or serving him through the church? Because anything outside of that is life worth living. The answer is no. No, it's not. Second reason there is because what you do doesn't satisfy. That's what he covered there in verse 5 to 8, those, those restless three. <laughs> you know, the, the sun, the wind, and the river. It's just continual cycle. It's like, it's like being on a treadmill day after day. It's like Groundhog Day, that movie. <coughs> same thing, over and over. I mean, how many of us get up and do the same thing every morning? And even throughout the day, you do the same thing. I mean, maybe on your way to work, you stop at Starbucks and you get the same drink. Then you go to the office, you go to the same cubicle, you sit down at the same computer. <coughs> you work for the same amount of time till noon, then you go to lunch, probably at the same restaurant, you eat the same thing, you go. It's just a monotonous life. <coughs> and that's what he's getting at here. All this stuff is just cyclical, it just goes round and round and round and round. In verses 90 ten, he points out because what you do is nothing new. What you do is nothing new. I think it takes old people to appreciate this, you know, because young people think they're coming up with new stuff all the time. And that's fine. Let them think that, but they're not. Why? Because there's nothing new under the sun. I always see red when I hear a a Bible teacher say, you know, I've discovered this new truth. (laughs) And they take you to a portion of scripture and it's like, wow, you know, Nobody's ever seen this before. Okay, there's something wrong here. Because there is nothing new under the sun. If you think it is, somebody's done it before. And then he says there in verse 11, because what you do is not remembered like you think it will be. That's so true. I mean, if we could just get that in our heads, that you know, and I've seen it happen with people who pour their whole life into, have a dear friend who, <clears throat> 30 some years at the county, worked at the county, I remember him working overtime and overtime and just racking his body for the county, and then that day came when he retired, he had nowhere to go anymore. Had no garage to go to to work where all the other guys were hanging out. And I remember talking to him at the, the coffee place. And, and I remember thinking, boy, I hope this guy makes this transition okay. Wasn't feeling good. He goes to the doctor. Ends up having a stroke. Now he's paralyzed. Partially. Shuffles around his house every day. And here's a guy who had a probably a $50,000 boat you know, ready to go to the lake every day, hit the casinos, do all this stuff, and it's just all down the tubes. I mean, he's got more money to do whatever he wants, but he can't do it physically. And pray for him. His name's Joe. I've been ministering him for years. (laughs) Catholic guy. But you know what? All the, the hard hours that he put in, all the crazy stories that he told me about, washouts up there and them having to redo the whole road before... It's all gone. Nobody's remembering who he is in, the, in the, the county garage anymore. And that's what happens to all of us. One day we'll die, someone else will fill our place, and life goes on. Um, it sounds kind of eerie, but it, it's the truth. Um... I mean, how many of you can name your great-great-great-great-grandfather and tell me about him? Probably not a whole lot of us. I, I, I don't even know anything about my grandfather, let alone my great-grandfather. Nothing, absolutely nothing. I don't know anything about him. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, so many times we think that you know, our legacy, all the stuff that we're working for will be carried on. And the Bible says, eh, it's not going to be remembered like we think it is. And also, because what you learn will not change certain facts of life. Um, What we learn doesn't just mystically change everything. That's what Solomon says. I've seen everything that's done under the earth. Everything. It's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. And in verse 18, he says there in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases in knowledge increases in what? In sorrow, sorrow, grief. In other words, the more you learn, the more it brings you grief. Um, You know, sometimes when you're helping people or giving counsel for people, whatever it might be, I mean, you know, Sometimes you you end up going wow you're just grieved over the situation you wish they never even told you you know because you want to fix it but you can't <laughs> and so sometimes the more we learn the harder it becomes and so apart from this lifelong pursuit of God there's no profit under the sun there's no nothing that's profitable for us uh, and basically his conclusion is if you, if you're outside of, of The circle of God, you're you're really living a life that's not worth living. Because he's the one who makes life worth living. He's the one who lasts forever. Um, Michael Eaton wrote this about Ecclesiastes. He says, The preacher wishes to deliver us from the rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life with its inevitable cynicism and bitterness and from trusting in wisdom, pleasure, wealth, and human justice – or integrity he wishes to drive us to see that god is there that he is good and generous and that only such an outlook makes life coherent and fulfilling you know we we need to be reminded to slow down and to remember that you know god is with us god is there charles Swindoll tells this story of a Native American, he was visiting New York City, and he was walking with a friend near the center of Manhattan, and the Indian suddenly stopped in the busyness of downtown New York City. He stopped, and he made his friend stop, and he whispered in his, over in his friend's ear, and he said, hey, stop, stop, I hear a cricket. <laughs> I mean, there's buses going by, and, and the guy's like, What? Get out of here. You can't hear a cricket downtown New York City. That's impossible. With all the sounds of passing trucks and, and impatient honking people, shouting, brakes screeching, all this stuff, Subways roaring by. It would be impossible to hear a cricket, even if one were present. But the Indian man was insistent, and he stopped his friend, and he began to crisscross the streets and sidewalks with his head cocked to one side, Intently listening, then he came up to a large cement planter where a tree was growing. He finally reached down and he found the cricket, and he held it up for his friend's benefit. Well, his friend was amazed and said, "How could you have possibly heard that cr- cricket and all this sound?" And reaching into his pocket, the Indian grasped a couple coins, a couple quarters. And he held them up to his chest, and he dropped them. And they fell down to the, the sidewalk. And everyone stopped. And they looked. It's like, ah, money, what's that? We know that sound. You know, Swindoll explained it this way. He says, it all depends what you're listening for. We don't have enough crickets in our heads, he says. We don't listen for them. Perhaps you've spent all your life searching for a handful of change. And you've missed the real sound of life. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would not pursue vain things in our lives. That we would be willing to pursue things that honor you, that, things that glorify you. Lord, that we would have an eternal perspective when it comes to our lives. Lord, it's so hard. It, it's, it is easy to get caught up with all the stuff in our lives. And Lord, there's nothing wrong with having nice things, but when those nice things have us and we become a slave to them, that's where we're in danger. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that we are to eat and to drink and to be merry and to to enjoy life to the fullest. And we can only do that when we have that personal relationship with you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've provided that for us. And Father, if there's any who's yet to put their faith and trust in Christ, I just pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me a sinner. Show me my need of a Savior and that you would complete that transaction in their lives. And we just thank you and we praise you. Uh, We just um, pray that you would continue to to watch over our body here, our church, and and just uh, ask you to to continue to draw people to this place who desire to know you and to know your word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.